Hi, I'm Micah Halpern. Thank you for joining me today as I do some thinking out loud. Our first segment is called Background Briefing. The first thing I've been thinking about is why so many people are embracing Hamas. It is so disturbing. It's taken two hurtful months, but finally I figured out why so many people on campus across America, across the United States, are supporting Hamas. Students, faculty, administrators, and staff at U.S. colleges and universities are the epicenter of pro-Hamas support in the United States. From these vaulted bastions of higher education, we get the spillover effect. And pro-Hamas support spills over, often even boils over, onto the streets and boulevards of our cities across the country. But why? That's the question I'm asking. Why support the fervent, passionate support for Hamas? There are many easy answers to the question of why. The best easy answer is that principally, being pro-Hamas is a guise for being a hater of Jews, Jew hatred. For hardcore Hamas activists, that would be the only answer needed. But most of the pro-Hamas headline-grabbing and Israeli flag-burning protesters destroying our cities are not hardcore. Most of them aren't even aware of what Hamas is. Most don't even know what Hamas stands for and holds dear. It's actually an acronym, Hamas, an acronym in Arabic, which stands for the Muslim Resistance Movement. People don't know that. And other than Jews and Israelis, these students don't know who makes the Hamas hate list. So how do you explain the mass turnouts at rallies, marches, and pro-Hamas demonstrations on campuses throughout the United States? Fringe groups of radicals have always emanated out of the extreme left on campuses across America for decades. Until now, however, their extreme messages were muted by the often modulated and mainstream voices on the left. These extremists were not taken seriously, not even by mainstream left on campus. They were extremists. It's been the case since the 1960s when the anti-war movement coalesced on college campuses. One of the axioms about campus political life is that mainstream campus left is far to the left of mainstream off-campus left in adult society. It's part of the college experience. Over the past two decades, however, that axiom has become extreme and campus dialogue has transitioned into more of a monotone and much less of a cacophony of sounds and ideas. And in that environment, since October 7th, Hamas has become the darling of the educated class on campus. Despite the fact that much of the video and sound of October 7th, the massacre, comes from Hamas's own body cams and GoPro headset recordings. They're recording them live and perpetrated the acts themselves. Many Hamas supporters insist on denying the horrific massacre, despite the fact that most of those on campus thrive on the internet and much of Hamas's own footage was uploaded immediately to the internet and even streamed live from the massacre. They persist in denying the carnage and disregard for human life. The murder, brutal rape, burning, dismembering of Jews by Hamas terrorists seems undeniable. And yet, people who we categorize as educated deny it or apologize for it or diminish it. Some even blame the Israelis and the IDF for doing it. If the educated class thinks Hamas is the hero and Israel the villain, 
it only makes sense that people on the street follow suit and embrace that evil. And now, to the why. Hamas is defended and supported by so many people today because of defending Hamas has been adroitly translated from a military and religious issue into a social action movement, into a political cause tailor-made for the overall left on campus. Defending Hamas is a defense of all Palestinians and of all people worthy of support. Palestinians, they believe, are oppressed and all oppressed people fall into the same social political category and rubric. Hamas is synonymous with the cause, as placards proudly carried on campuses and streets proudly proclaim, we are all Hamas, they shout. All Hamas, even though history tells us that the women with their hair blowing in the wind and members of the LGBTQ community proudly draping their colors with hastily bought black and white or red and white keffiyehs would quickly be murdered by Hamas heroes. Hamas is synonymous with the cause for the left on campus today. In their eyes, there was no initial Hamas massacre. It doesn't fit their narrative. For them, it is simple. Israel is the oppressor. Hamas and the Palestinians are the victims. They are defending the victim against the oppressor. Just listen to the rhetoric, the conferences, the speakers, the protesters. They almost never mention the Hamas massacre. And if the Hamas massacre of October 7th is mentioned, it is contextualized. That's a word we have to remember. Forget Congress and university presidents. There is no better example of this than the recent meeting between the families of the hostages that was called together to speak to the ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross. At the meeting of the ICRC, in essence, the Red Cross told the families to stop whining. The ICRC, who has not yet visited the hostages, as they are mandated to do, told the hostage families to think about the Palestinians in Gaza who were being bombed every day by Israel. Instead of expressing concern for the hostages, instead of promising to do their utmost despite Hamas's constraints, to visit the hostages, provide medicine and food, deliver messages, attest to their health and well-being, the ICRC lectured these tortured families. These families, many of them composed of released hostages themselves, who know exactly what their loved ones are living through, were told to be considerate and think about others, the Gazans, and supposedly the less fortunate. Hamas does not care about Palestinian lives, you should all know that. Pro-Hamas masses on campus and on the streets of America do not understand the basic underpinnings of Hamas. Hamas is driven by religious verve, not politics. They should know. They should understand. Hamas does not hide it. They hide hostages and they hide rifles in teddy bears. Coming up next, points of view. First up is a column from the Wall Street Journal published on December 5th and written by Ron Hasner, a political science professor at Cal Berkeley. This is the kind of column that makes me laugh. It's important to laugh sometimes with this column and others like it. Hasner actually proves just how little so many people know about the war between Israel and Hamas. The column is titled, From Which River to Which Sea? Subtitled, College Students Don't Know. 
yet they agree with the slogan. This is how Hasner begins. When college students who sympathize with Palestinians chant from the river to the sea, do they know what they're talking about? I hired a survey firm to poll 250 students from a variety of backgrounds across the United States. Most said they supported the chant, some enthusiastically, so 32.8%, uh, and others to a lesser extent, 53.2%. But only 47% of the students who embraced the slogan were able to name the river and the sea. Some of the alternative answers were the Nile and the Euphrates, the Caribbean and the Dead Sea, which is a lake, and the Atlantic. Less than a quarter of the students knew who Yasser Arafat was. Twelve of them, or more than 10%, thought he was the first Prime Minister of Israel. Asked in what decade Israelis and Palestinians signed the Oslo Accords, more than a quarter of the chant supporters claimed that no such peace agreements had ever been signed. There's no shame in being ignorant, unless one is screaming for the extermination of millions. Now Hasner tells us that once some of the students actually saw the map, they reversed their point of view. He continues, would learning basic political facts about the conflict moderate students' opinions? A Latino engineering student from a Southern university reported definitely supporting from the river to the sea because Palestinians and Israelis should live in two separate countries side by side. Shown a map of the region that the Palestinian state would stretch from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, leaving no room for Israel. He downgraded his enthusiasm for the mantra to probably not. Of the 80 students who saw the map, 75% similarly changed their view. An art student from a liberal arts college in New England probably supported the slogan because Palestinians and Israelis should live together in one state. But when informed of recent polls in which most Palestinians and Israelis rejected the one state solution, the student lost his enthusiasm. So did 41% of the students in that group. A third group of students claimed that the chant called for a Palestine to replace Israel. 60% of the students reduced their support for the slogan when they learned it would entail the subjugation, expulsion, or annihilation of 7 million Jews and 2 million Arab Israelis. Yet another 14% of the students reconsidered their stance when they read that many American Jews considered the chant to be threatening even racist. This argument had a weaker effect on students who self-identified as progressive despite their alleged sensitivity to offensive speech. Hausner now concludes by writing that while these students knew and understood absolutely nothing about what was really happening, they vociferously insisted on weighing in on the subject. Hausner writes, in all, after learning a handful of basic facts about the Middle East, 67.8% of the students went from supporting from the river to the sea to rejecting the mantra. These students had never seen a map of the Middle East and knew little about the region's geography, history, or demography. Those who hope to encourage extremism depend on the political ignorance of their audiences. It is time for good teachers to join the fray and combat bias with education.
This is such a spectacular column. It illustrates the reality behind these campus protests. Well done, Ron Hasner. Thank you so very much. Next up is a column by Michael Milstein, which was published in Ynet on December 8th, 2023. Milstein's column is entitled, Gaza War Reveals a New Iron Curtain Descending Across the World. Subtitled, Opinion. Like during the times of the Cold War, the world is divided into two blocks, the West and the culture of perpetual victimhood that sanctifies violence. Milstein begins by asserting that there is a difference between the West and the Arab world. He starts with Churchill after World War II. He writes, Winston Churchill describes the Iron Curtain dividing the world into two opposing camps in the immediate aftermath of World War II. The Gaza War reveals a new Iron Curtain, but this time it does not divide camps composed of states, but cultures. The struggle to evoke international compassion for war crimes perpetrated against Israeli citizens on October 7th is not rooted in dysfunctional public diplomacy, but forms part of the ongoing need to contend with a global counterculture founded on a cynical one-dimensional interpretation of the term truth. This camp consists of majority of Arab Muslim world, Russia, China, and some countries in Africa, Asia, as well as Western Muslim communities that serve as a vanguard for the global anti-Israel campaign. Members of this camp are dictatorial or authoritarian, and their peoples are weak populations that succumb to and at times side with ideological escapades of their local regimes. The leaders of this camp have issued particularly preposterous statements since the war in Gaza began, such as Russia's condemnation of the war crimes in Gaza, the apprehension expressed by Iran's and Syria's presidents, Raisi and Bashar al-Assad, known as the butchers over the mass civilian casualties, and UN General Guterres' one-dimensional stance of pursuing some twisted context for the violence, thereby manifesting the growing moral degeneration that has spread throughout the organization that he heads, and which recently appointed Iran to a senior position on the Human Rights Council. The Gaza war must prompt the West to recognize that Israel is a frontline fort in the battle between civilizations that has already crossed their doorstep and could pose a threat to their identities. It is apparent in the Muslim minorities that spearhead the loud and often violent protests that reflect the anti-human approach to human life as a value and are gradually taking hold of public and political discourse across the West. The clash of civilizations foreseen by Huntington is coming true. However, the parties to it are not state political but cultural, crossing geographical delineations and being conducted within the West. The egocentric anti-human denomination denies the possibility that the weaker party can also be a brutal war criminal, as the Palestinians have proven numerous times, especially on October 7th. Now Milstein concludes, writing that Israel must work to build a bulwark to fight these issues. They're moral issues, and Israel has to be at the forefront of it. He continues, Israel must direct its public diplomacy efforts at Western audiences who share similar morals and feel threatened by the cultural demographic change their countries are undergoing in recent decades. Under the threat 
of PC or political correctness, Westerners have been taught to avoid criticism that could mark them as racist, and particularly as backward Islamophobes. However, the Gaza War, at the center of which is the unspeakable October 7th massacre, demonstrates that these developments are indeed a growing threat to Western civilization's core values, and that the atrocities perpetrated in Gaza border communities could recur in neighborhoods across Western Europe, North America, and Australia. Milstein has given us a very cogent and important perspective. Thank you very much, Professor Milstein. Coming up, commentary through cartoons where pictures tell the story. I want to show you seven cartoons and memes today, but first I want to share with you a short story. This is a tongue-in-cheek tale about Emily Hand, the young girl who celebrated her ninth birthday while being held captive in Gaza by Hamas. As you might recall, Emily is also a citizen of Ireland, and the Irish Prime Minister never referred to her as being a hostage. Instead, he said that she was lost and then found. Here is the story. It's a children's story. The Girl Who Got Lost, based on a story by the Prime Minister of Ireland. There once was a girl who was totally normal. She was like all other girls. She was nothing too formal. She loved drawing horses and playing with toys. She had so many friends, mostly girls, but some boys. Till one Saturday morning, as she lay in her bed, she was suddenly lost, the Prime Minister said. But this wasn't the loss that you have in your mind. The loss she was lost in was an unusual kind. She was not lost in the park while climbing a tree, nor lost building castles from sand by the sea. She did not get lost as she swam in the pool. She was not even lost on the way back from school. Not anywhere you'd imagine, you see. She was lost in the worst place that lost ones could be. About 50 days later, she was magically found. You will never guess where. She was held by Hamas in a tunnel underground. So to all the people who are still left behind, you're only lost in the eyes of the blind. Next up is a picture of the president of the Jewish community of Finland, Jerome Nabilnork, who wore a bring them back necklace while attending a formal reception for Finland's Independence Day at the presidential palace. Standing beside Jerome was his wife, wearing a gown adorned with the names of the hostages. Unbelievable picture, a powerful statement of solidarity. Now a cartoon. This cartoon is a portrayal of a t-shirt wearing pro-Hamas protesters. The slogans on their t-shirts and are proudly pointedly demonstrating what the protesters actually stand for. They're also holding placards. The placards read, Gazans rape Jewish girls only in self-defense. Proud of our rapist martyrs. Free Gaza, kill Zionists, cutting off Jewish breasts for Palestine murdering. 1,300 Jews isn't anti-Semitic. I love Hamas. The world is truly upside down when you look at these. Next up is a maze representing Gaza. An Israeli soldier enters the maze. Civilians are in every room and Hamas is hiding behind the civilians. Human shields. This next cartoon shows Hamas terrorists with blood on his hand, standing in Gaza amidst the destruction. A bomb is about to fall directly on him. And he says, now I'm thinking terrorism isn't such a good idea. Some people would say, uh, duh. 
This next cartoon depicts Hamas as a beast with a dagger and a sword dripping blood. The caption reads, you cannot claim the moral high ground when you covered it with blood. A very powerful, powerful message. This next cartoon is a depiction of a frequent theme that we've been seeing, and we saw one earlier in the cartoons now. Hamas using children as human shields. In this case, children are strapped to the terrorist's body, and the caption reads, Hamas body armor. Finally, a picture of the complete English edition of Hitler's Mein Kampf. This version is published by Harvard University Press. This is so biting. In a moment, more of my own perspective and a few predictions. The Shin Bet Security Agency released footage of interrogation of former Hamas Minister of Communications, Yosef Almansi. The former Hamas minister rips apart the terror group and its leaders, especially Hamas mastermind and leader Yahya Sinwar. In the interview with Almansi, he describes Hamas saying, and I'm quoting here, it's a group of madmen led by Sinwar. They've destroyed the Gaza Strip, setting it back 200 years. People in the Strip say that Sinwar and his group have ruined us. We need to get rid of them. I haven't seen anyone who supports Simwar. No one likes him. Some people pray day and night that God will free us from him. He has delusions of grandeur, feeling that he is above everyone and acts only according to his own thoughts. Al-Masbizi condemned Hamas's October 7th attack, the massacre on Israeli border towns near Gaza, calling it heresy and the complete opposite of Islam. It's a fascinating interview released by the Shin Bet for all to hear and learn from. Ahmed Karika, the new commander of Hamas's Shadal Battalion, was killed in an airstrike. The IDF and the Shin Bet announced the targeting in a joint statement. Karika replaced Visam Farhat, who was killed in an Israeli strike on December 2nd. Before this promotion, since the 2019, Karika served as the deputy commander of the battalion. And before that, he trained anti-tank missile operators in the Gaza City Brigade. Israel has promised to eliminate Hamas leadership. This is just one or two examples. A new leader comes, they get uh, eliminated immediately. IDF Arabic spokesperson, Lieutenant Colonel Avichai Adre, announced that Hezbollah had launched several shells toward Israel and that had been fired from a site just a few yards away from a UN peacekeeping force in southern Lebanon. According to Adre, several additional rockets have been fired towards Israel from this area. He said, there are photos documenting the terrorist organization's activities and that I'm quoting here, Hezbollah continues to violate UN Resolution 1701 in addition to endangering UNIFIL soldiers, that's UN Interim Forces in Lebanon soldiers. While all eyes are on Gaza, we must not forget that Israel is engaging with the enemy on the north of Israel as well, with Hezbollah. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu called on Hamas members to lay down their arms and surrender as the IDF continues to make gains within the Gaza Strip. Speaking directly to Hamas terrorist forces, the Prime Minister said, in recent days, dozens of Hamas terrorists have surrendered to our forces. They are laying down their arms and surrendering themselves to our heroic soldiers. 
it will take more time. The war is at its peak, but this is the beginning of the end for Hamas. I say to the Hamas terrorists, it is over. Don't die for Sinwar. Surrender now. Egyptians went to the polls in a three-day-long presidential election in which Abdel Fattah al-Sisi was poised to win a third term in power. This election was held as the country grapples, Egypt is grappling with an economic crisis, war on its border with Gaza. Victory hands Sisi a six-year term, and it's very unlikely he'll lose. Of course he will win. His immediate priorities will be taming the near-record inflation, managing a chronic foreign currency shortage, and preventing spillover from the conflict between Israel and Gaza into Egypt. The formal result of the election will be announced shortly, but there will be no surprises. Critics are calling the election a sham, pointing to a decade-long crackdown on dissent led by, of course, Sisi. For their part, Sisi's government's media called it a step towards political pluralism. Just a bit of an exaggeration, I think. The French Navy announced that a French destroyer intercepted two drones that were moving toward it in the Red Sea off the coast of Yemen. According to the French military, the two interceptions took place at 11.30 p.m. Saturday night and 1.30 a.m. Sunday morning. The incident occurred 110 kilometers, that's about 80 miles, off the coast of Yemen, near the port city of Al-Hadouya, which is near and under the control of the Houthi rebels. You should know that the United States has probably shot down close to 20 of these drones. Mohammed Nazal, a member of the Politburo of Hamas, said there will be no negotiations with Israel, and I'm quoting here, unless there is a complete ceasefire. According to Nazal, quoting again, Netanyahu insists on continuing the fighting because the U.S., Britain, and Germany see the ceasefire as a defeat for Israel, unquote. Nazal then disputed the statement of IDF spokesman, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Hagari, who said that the Hamas leadership is disconnected from the situation on the ground and said, quoting again, the political and military leadership in Israel is disconnected from reality, not Hamas. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu spoke with Russian President Vladimir Putin by phone the other day about the war against Hamas and the situation in the region. According to his office, the Israeli Prime Minister expressed his dissatisfaction with the positions expressed against Israel by Russian representatives at the UN and in other forums. Netanyahu also criticized the dangerous cooperation between Russia and Iran. He emphasized that any country that had been struck with a criminal terrorist assault such as Israel experienced would have reacted with no less force than Israel is using. Netanyahu did express his appreciation of the Russian effort to release an Israeli citizen with Russian citizenship and said that Israel would use all means, diplomatic and military alike, to free all the hostages and requested that Russia apply pressure on the Red Cross regarding visits and the delivery of medicines for the hostages. We've been thinking out loud about a lot today. Now that you know what I've been thinking, let me know what you're thinking. Email me at micah at jbstv.org. Tweet me at Micah Halpern. Tell me what you think. Before we end, let me leave you with one picante piece of information. Let's talk about Hanukkah. We should talk about Hanukkah often, even when it's not Hanukkah, because Hanukkah is such an integral part of our Jewish lives. 
Most people know about this and speak about the story of Hanukkah and the miracle of the crucible of oil that lasted eight days. Some speak about and know about the battle between the Syrian Greeks and the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees. But there is almost no one who speaks about another element of the story. It's often lost in our commemorations. One which is found, by the way, in the first and second books of Maccabees. Not often discussed, but essential. The truly significant part of Hanukkah conflict was not a military conflict between the Greeks and the Hasmoneans. It was a cultural conflict. Maccabees rejected the assimilationist Jews who embraced the Hellenized Greek life with great verve. The real battle, and it was violent, was Jew versus Jew, Hellenized Jew against the Maccabees. In the end of this brief historic period, the Maccabees successfully stopped Greek culture from destroying Judaism. For that, we should be grateful, and that is one of the major miracles of Hanukkah. Thank you for thinking out loud with me, Micah Halpern. Let's think out loud again next week on JBS. Mm -hmm.